Well, how many of you love the Word of God today? All righty. I'm going to finish this, the series that we began on temptation six weeks ago. Hard to believe, isn't it? Six weeks on temptation. But I want to talk today about, for me, what is the most important, or one of the most important issues here, and that's dealing with sin and guilt. Because sin and guilt can destroy you, or you can handle it. It's really up to how we understand God and the sacrifice He made for us. So I'm going to show you 1 John 2 and verse 1. And let's finish this today on tackling temptation and dealing with the sin and the guilt that always, or the guilt factor that always follows sin. Now, 1 John 2, 1 says, my dear children, so we know who he's talking to, right? Christians who have sinned. Anybody sinned yet this year? Okay, the rest of you, man, I want to meet you. I want your secret. All right? My dear children, I write this to you so that you, read it with me everyone, will not sin. But he knows you will. He's not telling you to go do it, but he's writing to God's children saying, I don't want you sinning, I don't want you living, living a sinful lifestyle, but here's what you do if you sin, or really when you sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Isn't that powerful? When we sin, we have somebody who talks to the Father on our behalf. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Is anybody thankful for that verse right there? All right. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. We pray that you will bless it to our hearts. Feed us. Lord, I pray for a victorious church. And Lord, I pray for this all the time. Lord, I cover this church in prayer, and I'm asking today that you will take us one more step further down the road of victory and maturity, overcoming faith, and a successful walk with God. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Say it with me, I receive that. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Now let me just recap for a minute what we have gone over in the last few weeks. We've approached temptation from several different angles. Here they are, the certainty of temptation. We are all going to be tempted. Secondly, the source of temptation, where it comes from. Third, the purpose of temptation, how God works it for our good. He will if you repent and turn to Him. Fourth, the escape from temptation. God is faithful to provide a door-marked exit. Amen? And then last week, the cues to flee temptation. How to know when it's time to go. So the certainty, the source, the purpose, the escape, the cues. Those five things we've dealt with about temptation. Now, what about when temptation wins? And you mess up, you sin, you fall, you err, and you stumble. And now there is something between you and God. You know that you have sinned. It may be, uh, now of course there's no minor sin, sin is sin, but it may be something you can ask forgiveness for and the consequences are going to be minimal, or it may be something major and the consequences are going to be major. But I want to assure you today, church, that our God has created a moral universe, and that moral universe requires that we experience consequences. There will be consequences for sin. I say, well, 
Doesn't God forgive? Yes, God forgives. But you can give me six people standing on a 20-story building, and all of them can jump. One can not repent on the way down. The other one can repent on the way down. And the other four can involve themselves in some sort of restitution, New Year's resolution, whatever. But bottom line, they're all going to hit with the same force. The forgiven one's going to hit. Are you all there? And the one with the good intentions is going to hit. The one that doesn't believe in sin is still going to hit. Bottom line is there's going to be consequences. But now, I want to talk to you about handling the sin and the resulting guilt. Because one of the worst consequences is that guilt. And thank God that Jesus can wash the sin away that takes the guilt away. I am so thankful for the blood of the Lamb that takes the guilt away. And my message to lost people, to people that do not believe in Jesus, has become this message. What are you going to do with your sin? Well, I don't believe I'm in sin. Have you ever lied? Well, sure, I've lied. Well, then you're a sinner. Have you ever stolen? Well, you know, here and there, then you're a sinner. Well, have you ever cussed? Yeah, well, then you're a sinner. Have you ever, ever done something you shouldn't? Well, sure, then you are a sinner and you have sin and you need forgiveness. Now, good intentions won't get rid of it. Hugging a tree won't get rid of it. Becoming a Buddhist won't get rid of it. Becoming a, 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 a well-intentioned, good citizen of the United States of America, never getting another traffic ticket, will not get rid of your sin. One thing will, and it is the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us. Only that blood can wash the sin away. Now, knowing how to handle sin and the guilt that comes from it is crucial to be, being able to go on with God in a positive, faithful, uh, fruitful, and productive, and joyful future. You've got to know how to deal with it. So let me talk to you today about something to remember, something to recognize, and something to keep when it comes to dealing with your sin. Something to remember, something to recognize, and something to keep. Now let's talk about something to remember. What am I to remember when I sin? You are to remember what that verse showed us. You're to remember that we have an advocate. Remember when you sin, Christian friend, you have an advocate. That means somebody who's on your side. Can I tell you today that God's not against you? If you're his child, he is for you. If God be for us, and he is, then who or what can be against us. An advocate literally means, it's taken from a Greek word that means a lawyer, somebody who pleads our case in a court of law. The Bible is telling you and I that we've got somebody on our side, an advocate, and that advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And when you and I sin, he is for you, he is on your side, he is not against you. He's against your sin, but He loves you with an everlasting love. He wants to see you delivered, forgiven, stood on your feet, washed of your sin, filled again with hope and joy and love and peace and walking down that narrow road again that leads to life. He does not want the sin to destroy your life. He doesn't want the guilt to ruin your life. We have an advocate. Now, here's the way that it works, according to the Bible. When we sin, we've got an accuser. 
So you've got an accuser on one side and an advocate on the other. Here they are. Both are focused on you. And it says we've got an accuser of the brethren. His name is Satan. And when you and I sin, he immediately approaches God, according to the book of Job, and he brings accusations against us in God's heavenly court. He says, have you seen so-and-so down there, your child? Do you know what they just did? Do you know what they just involved themselves in? And the accuser begins to accuse. Devil comes from a word, diabolos. And it means one who hurls accusations so hard that it goes through you. Dia, through. Bolos, to hurl. He hurls accusations into your mind. They come with such velocity and such strength and such guilt and such condemnation that it's like you have been pierced with a fiery arrow. That's the accuser of the brethren. He's an accuser. And it's interesting, when somebody sins, whose side you're on? Are you the accuser of the brethren or are you the advocate who prays for them and wants them to be restored? He went before God and he accused Job. Have you considered your servant Job? I'm telling you, he'll curse you to your face if you take everything away from him. He's not the man you think, you think he is. That was the accuser of the brethren. John the Revelator described the devil as the accuser of our brethren. That's where the phrase comes from. Revelations 12, 9 and 10 says, Who accused the church before our God day and night. That accuser will one day be cast down. I'm looking forward to the day that the angel grabs him by the scruff of the neck and carries him to the bottomless abyss, hurls him into the lake of fire, and shuts the door. I'm looking forward to it. And I want to tell you, folks, it's not far away. Jesus is near. He is at the door. And boy, if there's ever a time to get right with God and let that blood cleanse you, friend, it is now. It is today. And, and uh, let the blood of Jesus wash you of your sin and redeem you and get you filled with the Holy Spirit and in right standing with God. Now, when this happens, when the accuser of the brethren goes before God, he said, did you see what they did? Do you know what they did? He begins to hurl accusations, not only to God, but at you in your mind. Something has to answer it. Something has to assuage it. Something has to remove it. Something's got to handle it. And the Bible says, as soon as you repent of your sin." You have an advocate, a lawyer, an attorney in heaven. He is brilliant. He is the best. He's never lost a case. He has a way in court that no prosecuting devil has ever defeated. His name is Jesus. He never loses in his fight for you. And the Bible says as soon as we repent, the advocate, Jesus Christ, comes and stands beside us and he begins to defend us well what does he do well at the throne of god Je jesus simply opens his portfolio and lays out the exhibits of good friday he says let me show you what i did on good friday and photographs of the crown of thorns the lashing the mocking uh, soldiers the agonies of the cross and the final cry of victory, it is finished. Jesus shows God what he did. And God looks at that and says, forgiven, redeemed, 
justified, righteous. I have no argument with the blood. The blood covered all sin. That's why what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What stops the, the accuser's mouth and sends him running? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Thank God for the blood of Jesus shed for you and me. Because once you're God's child and you sin, you've got a lawyer that steps right up when the accuser's over here, the lawyer steps over here and opens up that portfolio and says, I died, I was beaten, I was bloodied, I was buried, and I was resurrected. Now, get out of here. And the accuser must go. So can you say with me, I've got an advocate fighting for me in the presence of God. So when God looks at you today, can I tell you the honest truth? This is it. When God looks at you, he does not see sin. If you have repented, he does not see sin. He sees only Jesus Christ. He looks at you through rose-colored sunglasses, S-O-N. He does not see what you see. He sees the redemptive blood of his Son, and you are as righteous as his Son. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made and declared the righteousness of God in Christ. Thank God for that. And so even in the hallways of your own mind, the shouting accusations of the enemy are silenced. And the guilt is lifted because the blood covers your sin. Nothing else can do that. Now after remembering our advocate, remembering that we've got an advocate, and repenting, we've got to learn to recognize. Watch carefully now recognize the difference between destructive guilt and godly conviction. I can't tell you how often Christians allow destructive guilt and condemnation to beat their brains out because they have not learned to go to the advocate and say, Father, forgive me, and then walk in that forgiveness and refuse to let the enemy pummel them any longer with destructive guilt. Paul describes the difference when writing to the Corinthian church that has just repented from some sin that was in their ranks. He describes the difference between destructive guilt and godly conviction. Listen to what he says, 2 Corinthians 7, 9-10. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, because sorry alone doesn't cut it, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner. Now watch this, church. You were made sorrowful by the conviction of the Holy Spirit within you. Holy Spirit conviction is not the same as condemning guilt. Listen to what he says about the two. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted but the sorrow of the world produces death it is lethal so Holy Ghost conviction makes me repent and that brings relief that I never regret but 
But worldly guilt beats me up and beats me up and haunts me and tears at me and brings me down and shadows me and tails me until finally it is lethal to my life. There are people walking around today filled with guilt that they have been carrying for years and years and years. It's a heavy hundred pound backpack on their back. And they have never been freed of it. They've tried to drink it away. I am convinced this is why people turn to alcohol and to drugs. The guilt that hounds them, the guilt that tails them, the guilt that, that seeks them out that they can't seem to shake. They say, i got to get away from this somehow. So they drink to take it away. They do drugs to take it away. They involve themselves in various uh, lifestyles to try to take it away. But the bottom line is, only the blood of Jesus will take that guilt away. Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Now watch this, two kinds of sorrow, godly sorrow and the sorrow of the world. One produces repentance, the other kills. One is beneficial, the other is destructive. Godly sorrow comes from the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and it's designed to lead us to repentance. But the sorrow of the world, which is unresolved guilt. When he says sorrow of the world, that's what he's talking about, unresolved guilt. The sorrow of the world brings death. It drives us away from God. Listen, the sorrow of the world is comprised of relentless condemnation designed to destroy our hope, drive us away from God, and push us further into sin. Because we say, what's the use? I keep messing up. I can't get rid of this guilt. I might as well give in to it fully. And that's a lie from the devil. That's a lie from the devil. You do not have to be pushed further into sin. You do not have to live under relentless condemnation. Romans 8.1 tells every believer on earth, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Jesus Christ? Why? Because He took care of all of our condemnation and all of our guilt. So God wants us walking with a skip in our step and a smile on our face and a gleam in our eye, light as a feather, flying through life on the wings of grace because we have been forgiven. Now, He goes on with this. This is fascinating to me. Paul spells out the difference between destructive guilt and healthy conviction by describing what true repentance flowing out of godly sorrow looks like. What does real repentance look like? Because that's the only thing that's going to take the sin away. He says, now I'm glad, not that you were upset, but that you were jarred into turning things around. Did you catch that? Here's repentance. Repentance is, I'm going this way, and I know it's a way of disobedience. Here I go, and I'm rebelling against God. He confronts me. He convicts me. I get godly sorrow. I experience godly regret. And I say, Lord, forgive me my sin. But it doesn't end there. That's half of repentance. Are you all there? What's the other half? Whoop, I turn around. And I start obeying God and going this way. I'm obeying you, Lord, 
I'm walking with you now, Lord. I've let that go. I've walked away from what I should have. I'm pursuing you. I'm being obedient. I'm doing the best I can. I meant it when I said it. So I have done a turn around. My repentance jarred me into reality. And now I've turned around and I'm living a different life. There are some people who repent all the time and they never change. That's not repentance. That's just being sorry. Sorry, dads. I know this is kind of a tough word for today, but I didn't feel led to leave this thing today. And, and I want to just, I want to get this in our minds. See, greasy grace says, and sloppy agape says, well, I'll just tell God that I feel bad about it. I'm in the altar crying, carrying on. But I walk out and I go do the same thing. Never change. God says, you didn't repent. You just put on a show. So what about if I repent and I turn around and I mess up again? Get right back up, ask God to forgive you, and keep going in the right direction. Because every day that you obey God, you're going to see more and more mercy drops falling on your life. And the, the restoration of God and the redemption of God. Listen, the prodigal son said to himself, I'm returning to the Father. And the minute he took one step out of that pigsty, the Father ran to him and hugged him and embraced him. And that boy returned to his father. Powerful stuff. He continues describing the benefits of true repentance. He said, Godly sorrow drives us to God, turns us around. It gets us back in the way of salvation. We never regret that kind of pain. And then he lays out what godly sorrow and repentance produced in them. Now look, he's about to describe the lives of people who didn't just say, forgive me, but they turned around and began to go the other way. Look what he says. And now, isn't it wonderful all the ways in which this distress has goaded you closer to God? You're more alive. You're more concerned. You're more sensitive. You're more reverent. You're more human. You're more passionate. You're more responsible. Looked at from any angle, you have come out of this with purity of heart. You know, repent is a beautiful six-letter word. Without repentance, we'd be stuck. Without repentance, there's no getting rid of the guilt. Repentance is, you know, somebody stands up and says, and the stereotypical mockery of a preacher is someone who gets up and says, repent! And that's old-fashioned and archaic and it should have passed away, and we're more modern now, we don't talk that way now, and that's too bad now. Because repent is a six-letter word that here you are, it's a door. That word, that door marked repent, on this side, you're full of guilt, you're full of condemnation, you're going down, you're spiraling, you're depressed, you're miserable. Repent, says the door, and you repent and you walk through. And on the other side, the birds are singing, the sun is shining, the clouds have departed, and there is a beautiful path leading to the glory of God when you walk through the door. Repent! I thank God for that word and that God has made it possible for us to turn. 
So in order to handle sin biblically, we've got to let it drive us in repentance to God for our restoration and our forgiveness, not away from God in despair and hopelessness. Don't let your mistakes drive you from God. Don't let your, you say, well, I know what he's thinking. Oh, there they are again. And it's the same thing. Not interested anymore. You're wearing me out. Have a great life. Now God says, I've told you to forgive somebody 490 times in one day. If I'm asking you to do that, what can I do? He wants you to get up. He wants you to get up. He wants you to get up. He wants you to move on. He wants you to get forgiven until you get your breakthrough and you are free and moving down the path of life. Don't let it drive you out of church, drive you out of prayer, drive you away from God. Now, once we remember our advocate, we've got one, a lawyer for us. And once we recognize the difference between worldly and godly sorrow, and I'm not going to let godly sorrow beat me up anymore once I have been forgiven by God, we've got to learn finally to keep short accounts with God. Keep short accounts with God. We've talked about temptation for five weeks now. This is the sixth. And what I want to say in closing is this. When you sin, when you sin, keep the account short with God. The Bible is clear that unconfessed sin should not be left to simmer any more than you would leave a cancer in your body. Unconfessed sin should not be left tearing you up on the inside. Let me give you a couple of reasons to keep short accounts with God. Everybody say short accounts. What I mean is repent and repent quickly. Repent quickly. Don't sit on it for days and weeks and months on end. Here's why. Unconfessed sin gives the devil an opportunity to establish a stronghold in your life. How many of you do not want a satanic stronghold in your life? All right, then you've got to get that sin under the blood immediately. Well, uh, so when you sin, say this to yourself, the sun is not going to set before I've settled this. Paul warned the church, don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry in your sin. For anger left to simmer gives a foothold to the devil. Unconfessed sin gives land, territory, to the devil. That's what foothold is. It means territory. When you don't confess sin, the, the, the enemy is able to come in and build a stronghold of rebellion and deception in your mind when that sin remains unconfessed. You've got to clear the clouds. You've got to, you've got to burn the mist and the fog of guilt away. You've got to get where the sun is shining again on your soul. Don't leave that cloudy sky in your soul by unconfessed sin. Second good reason to keep short accounts with God is unconfessed sin hardens your heart and sears your conscience. Now, what's a conscience? A conscience is that inner voice that warns us when we do wrong and congratulates us when we do what is right. Uncon uh, the conscience is that inward megaphone that God speaks through. And you know when you've done wrong because your conscience won't let you sleep. And you know when you're done right? Because when your head hits the pillow, you're gone. People that are walking around with guilt don't sleep well. they got to take pills to sleep, drink something to sleep. 
They've got to stay up all hours of the night because their guilt and their restless conscience will not let them go to sleep. That's a gift from God, your conscience. The conscience produces either a restful life or a restless life, depending on our lifestyle. Now, let me tell you something very important about the conscience as well. The conscience is like a watch. Here's a watch on my wrist right here. This watch is only accurate if it's set right. A clock set to the wrong time is always wrong. And you know what the Bible says about our conscience? Our conscience is dependable only if it has been set accurately by the Word of God, which clarifies and crystallizes to our consciences those things that are truly right or wrong. That's why I tell you every day, you need to be in the Word of God. I know I'm a broken record with this. You all have got to forgive me, but you're my flock, and I want you to succeed. And I'm telling you, you've got to be in this every single day. You know why? Because it's like you're taking a knife, and the knife is your conscience, and you're sharpening it on that flint stone of God's Word. And it's either dull or it's sharp. And every single day as you go through the Word of God, it sharpens your conscience so that you know exactly what is right and wrong and your watch is set to the Word of God and not the, the teaching of this culture, which is wrong. Our culture is in a free fall into an abyss. Believers had better be in the Word of God setting your conscience so that you are convicted about the right things. You know what God wants and doesn't want, and you're walking in His will. Everybody say, keep short accounts. Paul spoke a lot about the conscience, and he said, if you don't keep a short account and you leave that unconfessed sin there, he said it can be seared, your conscience seared like a cauterized skin. 1 Timothy 4.2 says, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. The interpreter's Bible says this, the seared conscience is burned into insensitivity and conscience which does not function. It's dulled. The knife blade is meaningless. You couldn't cut butter with it. That's what seared conscience means. The Abingdon Bible commentary says of the seared conscience that those with a seared conscience no longer realize that they are hypocrites and liars. That's what a seared conscience does. You lose the ability to tell what is right from wrong. Your conscience has been seared. That's why we can watch people professing Christianity on the news, living in all kinds of perversion and sin, and saying, I don't see anything wrong with it. Come on, church. What has happened there? Their conscience has been seared by unconfessed sin. See, if you take, a, you take a, a cauterizer and you cauterize my skin, here's what it means. It means I can touch it and I don't feel it. I can touch it and I don't feel it. When your conscience, when you live with unconfessed sin and you go on with it and on with it and one sin adds to another, eventually your conscience can't feel the conviction of God can't feel it it works like this following with sin following a sin God's voice at first is clear and loud repent and turn to me but if sin remains unconfessed the heart begins to crust over the eyes and the ears of the conscience grow dull God's voice grows more distant turn 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 
Consequently, the next sin is that much easier because you're not being convicted as you were anymore. Over time, unconfessed sin blinds and deafens our conscience. This is why Paul's rule of life was in Acts 24, 16. I always try to maintain a clear conscience before God vertically and all people horizontally. My conscience is clear. He instructed Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.18, cling to your faith in Christ, Timothy, and keep your conscience clear. This will help you fight well in the Lord's battles. And then he mentioned some folks that had not kept their conscience clear, and here's what he said. Some have rejected faith and a clear conscience and have shipwrecked their faith. How does that happen? Well, because they've said... I'm going to let this sin remain. I'm not going to obey God. I'm just going to go on in it and on in it and on in it. And it gets duller and duller and duller until finally they can't make good decisions or good judgments anymore. And their whole faith and their whole testimony shipwrecks. Unconfessed sin robs your happiness and paralyzes your boldness. Listen to David's autobiographical description in Psalms 32. He says, When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away. My body wasted away. Oh, gosh. My body wasted away. And I groaned all day long. Hey, David, how you doing? Oh, David, you're looking kind of sick. Oh, I know. What's the matter with you, dude? Oh. You didn't want to meet him during this time in his life. He would not have lifted you up. He said, day and night and night and day, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And look what he says, and you forgave me, and all my guilt is gone. Now, was he groaning then? Oh, I know he wasn't, because in Psalms 51 he says, Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me, now let me rejoice. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. When he confessed his sin, his joy returned. How many of you want joy? Let me tell you, if you love joy, if you like having joy, if you like being happy and waking up and enjoying your day, get that sin out of your life. Because sin will put a shadow over the whole thing and vex you and rob you of your joy. Hey, life's too short to have your joy robbed. Amen? So, when we sin, how do you handle it? You've got to remember, you've got an advocate that's just wanting to step in for you and defend you, and he will based on Good Friday. Second, you've got to recognize the difference between godly and worldly sorrow, and once you've repented, don't let worldly sorrow beat your brains out anymore. Third, keep short accounts with God. Get that sin under the blood quickly. End it. Stay in prayer until your conscience is clear, and then get up and enjoy your day. Can you stand up with me today? Can you say with me, God is good? All the time. I read the saddest story yesterday. I'm going to close with this. Two little dogs were seen walking across the street. It was a pit bull 
and it was a terrier of some kind. The pit bull had a 20-pound chain wrapped around his neck, and he was dragging it, and he was emaciated, and the little terrier was encouraging him to keep going. So they called the story Brains and Brawn. Brains, the terrier, leading the pit bull, encouraging him to keep going. Brawn had carried this 20-pound chain for days at least. Well, somebody got out of the car and took that chain off of him. It showed a picture of them in the pound. And that pit bull's head was held high. He had gained weight. He was happy because the chain had been removed. Isn't that the way it is with you and me? God wants to remove the chain. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for that beautiful door called repent that we can walk through and be forgiven and walk into a new life. And thank you, Lord, that we don't have to live under the whip of condemnation and godly or ungodly sorrow, worldly sorrow, the guilt that destroys because the blood has washed our sin away. And help us to live condemnation-free and help us to keep those short accounts with God. Now, while your head is bowed, if you can say, Pastor Jeff, I'd like a moment just to talk to the Lord about what I've heard today. I want you to do it. We're going to sing a stanza or two, and I want you to take a minute and say, Lord, I repent. I want to get this under the blood right now. I want to settle it. Vertical or horizontal. I want to take care of it. You do that as we sing right now. I...